This is Landry.audio, and it's 3 a.m. down here in Australia at the moment. I've been waiting to do, I've been waiting for months to do this interview. Uh, when I was growing up in Calgary, Alberta, the centerpiece of my bedroom where I lived in Silver Springs in northwest Calgary was a Theron Fleury poster that hung from my wall while he was in mid stride in the classic Red Flames uniform. We're talking a time in Calgary when Brett Hitman Hart was arguably the biggest wrestler on the planet, and Doug Flutie had joined the Stampeders years before he would go on to make an impact with the NFL. Since that time, Theo has gone through a hell of a journey, including a playing career that's also taken him to the Colorado Avalanche, New York Rangers, Chicago Blackhawks, and internationally to Finland and Northern Ireland. He's written two books, including the best-selling Playing With Fire, discussing his sexual abuse as a young hockey player, and how that led down a path of gambling and addiction. Nowadays, he uses these experiences to reach out to assist others through his Flurry uh, 14 organization, and he joins us from Calgary, Alberta. How was the morning treating you over there? Good, good. Yep, I uh, actually did a podcast earlier uh, today, so um, this is a, a rarity that uh, we're not on the road uh, uh, this week till Wednesday, so so it gives me an opportunity to catch up on, you know, the hundreds of requests we get to do podcasts. So happy to be with you. Awesome. Well, as, as I said, I think we're going to cover a lot of the same territory that you've done before, but hopefully, um, you know, it's, it's for a new audience. I think, um, I'm sure as the experience, you get the opportunity to meet a lot of people and I, I'm, I'm sure elements of the story are, are new to them as you explained it on the road. Um, mm-hmm. Look, the the first thing I wanted to ask you about is, um, you know, we might as well talk hockey, which is most, uh, you know, most people will 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 know you about historically. You know, what did you feel about the Flames bombing out in the first round of the playoffs? I thought it was a, a bit of a shame because on paper, um, I was sort of expecting the potential for uh, another Calgary-Tampa replay. Mm. <laughs> well, I think it was predictable, you know, Um you know they're a high octane, high octane offensive team, but you know what I know. What I've noticed is the trend of them playing big, bigger teams and not having a whole lot of success against those teams. And uh, you know Colorado has a, you know three big defensemen and you know a bunch of. Uh, forward to you know play very aggressive hockey and uh, and so yeah you know I said it was it was predictable so and is is Calgary your your default uh, team that you end up supporting are there other teams that, that you generally like to sort of follow these days I think I'm just a fan of the game in general you know obviously you know I live in Calgary because I played here and and whatnot but uh, you know I do follow the Flames and uh, get asked all the time the same question that you asked yeah. me uh uh but uh you know I, I think they're a team that's definitely on the rise their play in the regular season is outstanding and uh but you know the playoffs is a whole you know different animal in itself and the intensity uh you know amps up and the, the physical play uh, amps up and uh you know when your two best players aren't necessarily you know guys that uh thrive in those uh conditions uh you know i think the the end result was like i said predictable mm. 
this year we we saw three Canadian teams make the playoffs and all of them got knocked out in the first round. Do you would you do you tend to automatically default and, and support Canadian teams or um, there's a few people like myself that would still rather see guys like the Islanders get up over Toronto. <laughs> yeah, I, I think as long as the games are competitive, which, you know, I think the whole entire, especially the second round, uh, you know, has been really entertaining and, uh, you know, it's amazing to see what Carolina has done in the first two rounds, you know, upset, upset the, you know, the Stanley cup champions and then, you know, handled, uh, you know, a great New York Islanders team of great coaching staff, uh, you know, quite easily. So, you know, um, and, you know, when they brought the salary cap in, uh, you know, this is what they wanted. They wanted parity and they wanted every team to be competitive and, and have an opportunity to, to win a Stanley Cup. And, you know, that's what we're seeing this year. Mm. Do, do you have any issues with that? Almost the way you say it is sort of like, oh, it was a, a bit of an unnecessary compromise. Do, do you think salary cap is, is a good or a necessity for the game? Yeah, I, I you know, I think it, uh, you know, it's created sort of a, you know, uh, a pyramid system in your payroll. But, you know, I think uh, at the end of the day, the, the game is growing financially and, and fan support. And, uh, you know, when you have parity in the league, uh, you know, I think that's, you know, that's really important. And, you know, I find that teams now, uh, you know, if they're at the bottom of the barrel, so to speak, that it doesn't take them a long time to, you know, to build a team which can compete on a night nightly basis, uh, you know, in the NHL. Mm, Okay. Um, want to talk a you know a little bit more about your your career well when we go through you know when you read the background you're a bit of an anomaly to make the NHL because of your size at the time when you were going through uh juniors and going into the draft did it ever sort of was it in the back of your mind that that you might have been too small to play in the NHL like a lot of the detractors were saying about you <laughs> well i think i was the only guy that believed that you know that i could play in the NHL and so you know, I, I never listened to the noise, you know, I, uh, I was a guy that, uh, worked extremely hard, uh, in practice and, uh, you know, on the mental side of, of my game. And, uh, you know, I figured out early on that, you know, I had to develop a certain style of play in order to, you know, to have success and, and, uh, you know, found that sort of magic formula and, and, you know, turned it into, you know, a pretty decent, uh, you know, 15 year career. Yeah, definitely. Um, one of the things that I, I'm hearing a lot of, uh, retired players who are from your era of the game discuss is that they they lament a lot of the, um, the modern game because, uh, I've heard it from a few players that they talk about how, uh, the, the game as it stands today has stripped the players of their, their creativity. And I, I also miss, um, you know, a, a lot more of, uh, of the aggression and the fights that happen in the game. What's, what's sort of your opinion of, of where it is at the moment? Well, you know, now the coaches are making as much or more than the players, you know, they want to make sure that they have long-term employment. And so, you know, I, I believe philosophy is you know every coach coaches for a zero zero tie 
and you get a scoring chance in the last minute of the hockey game. You know, that's sort of how it's, you know, being played. And, you know, we have video, we have analytics, you know, we have all this stuff. And so basically, you know, the coaches are just playing Xbox with these guys, you know, and uh, there is a lack of creativity. I think every team pretty much plays the same style and, you know, and, you know, I think when they put in the instigator rule back when I was playing, that they took the they took the policing and they put it in the hands of the league, you know, and uh, and so you know that's why we're seeing the game being you know a little bit more chippy, a little bit more cheap, you know. We're seeing a lot more guys, you know, getting injured, and uh, yeah. So, um, but you know, the athletes are definitely uh, faster. They're fitter, um, you know, and so what we're seeing is just an evolution of, you know, man, you know, is that, you know, we know a lot more about nutrition. We know a lot more about exercise and, you know, even the bodies of the NHL players are completely different than the bodies that we had. So, you know, it's a lot more core based uh training whereas you know we had big arms big legs and big asses right you know <laughs> and so you know and so you know the that the way that we trained uh you know it's completely different to the way that these guys train nowadays so Mm, okay. Um, look, I, I'm mentioning Calgary because, as I mentioned, that that's where I come from. That's where you spent most of your career. And uh, I guess for people not listening to this, you're um, uh, you're you're a very well regarded person of the city. You sort of retain a, a mythological status. Um, at the time, in 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 the mid '90s, when you um, ultimately ended up getting traded, um, you had expressed your belief that you were mistreated by the Flames organization, and, and you were you, you clarified your comments to say that it wasn't about the fans; it was about the organization. But can you just sort of take us through what was going on around that period of time when you were, you know, you were at your height in the league? Well, what happened was, uh, you know, as I was. Uh, halfway through my uh, final year of my contract with the Flames, uh, we had started negotiating uh, an extension to that contract. And uh, I had a meeting with one of the owners, uh, probably, I don't even know what it was, month before the trade deadline. And they, uh, they offered me a, a four-year deal at $16 million. And I countered, and told them uh, I would stay for five million for five years. And what they told me was we can't afford that. And so I said, okay, I'm gonna go see what I can do in free agency because I only get one opportunity to, you know, to do this in my career. And uh, basically, after that meeting, there was a headline uh, in the paper a couple days after that basically said uh, that I had turned down five years at 25 million, which is what I had counter offered. And, uh, you know, a couple of days after the article came out, I got traded to Colorado. What you only ended up spending one season playing there. What, what did you sort of think about the time that you had there? Uh, I think you ended up hurting your knee, I think in one of the very first games, didn't you? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I was basically there for five months. So I was like a rental player, right? 
and uh and so you know went to an amazing talented hockey team you know it was like playing on an all-star team you know at the time Joe yeah, of course, yeah. And peter forsberg patrick waugh claude lemieux milan Hayduk. yeah like it was it was ridiculous how how good we were and uh you know, we had a great run in the playoffs and, you know, we lost to the eventual Stanley Cup winners, the Dallas Stars in game seven. So, you know, it was, uh, it was an amazing experience and, uh, you know, it was fun to be around guys that, uh, you know, uh, you know, their focus is, you know, Stanley Cup or nothing. And, and, uh, you know, it's good to be around a group of guys like that, that, you know, think that way, act that way. And, uh, you know, uh, govern themselves accordingly. How, how do you compare, like, uh, out of those four teams that, that you played for, what was the best team? Not, not in terms of the success, but when you look at the management, the structure of the organization, uh, you know, player support. Uh, geez. I think each organization brings something different, you know, and, uh, you know, it's, you know, it's a, it's a privilege and an honor to play in the NHL and, uh, you know, uh, you know, your job, your job is to, uh, win the Stanley cup every year. And when you don't do that, it, uh, you know, it should be considered, uh, you know, a failure. And, uh, and so, you know, every organization that I played for, you know, uh, especially when I got to Calgary, you know, we won the Stanley cup in our first year and, and, uh, you know, after that, it was sort of a transitioning of, uh, you know, they dismantled the team and, uh, you know, moved in a different direction. You know, when I went to Colorado, they were already there. They were, they were ready to win. Uh, when I went to New York, uh, you know, the team had struggled and they brought, you know, they spent a lot of money to bring in a bunch of free agent talent. And, uh, unfortunately we just didn't gel as a team and, and have the success that we probably should have. And, uh, you know, and then when I went to Chicago, they were a team on the rise and, uh, you know, we ran into some injuries early on in the season and, uh, you know, didn't have the year that, uh, that we were all hoping for. Mm. Um, you know, I've, I've had the opportunity to go to New York a few times. I think it's one, I think it absolutely is arguably the greatest city in the world you've in other interviews you've talked about your issues uh adapting to it because you were from a, a small town in saskatchewan um what were sort of the issues there because i mean it's you can certainly get yourself into a lot of fun while you're there yeah for sure and uh you know uh i would say i would say my state of mental health at that time in my career was not in a good place and uh you know the they tried to help with, you know, medication and use big pharma, which in the end was probably not a good thing. And, uh, you know, and at the end of the day, it was, uh, you know, it wasn't my addiction that took me out of the game. It was my state of mental health that, uh, you know, I could no longer manage my depression and my anxiety and my panic disorder. And, uh, and so, you know, I had a year left on my contract in Chicago and, you know, I knew if I went back there, that it was going to be much of the same struggle. And so, you know, I decided to, I decided to, you know, leave the game and, uh, and, uh, 
and try to, you know, figure out my mental health issues. So how does that, that, that's something that, um, I guess that probably isn't discussed a lot or, or understood that the, the city or the environment plays into it. Does that, um, is it harder to play in a big city where there's more distractions or what, what are sort of the issues involved in that? No, I had absolutely nothing to do with the city. It had everything to do with where I was in, you know, in, uh, you know, my, Dealing with my childhood trauma, you know, which turned which turned into, you know, mental health issues and addiction issues, and and so, um, you know, like I said, uh, it was really sort of a difficult time, you know, because uh, how addiction is treated is basically, you know, they send you away for thirty days. They take away all of your coping mechanisms and then they fill you a belly full of 12 step and then they send you out the door. And that's why only one out of 30 people who go to a 30 day treatment facility go on to continuous sobriety. All right. Okay. Well, it's all, you know, I think it's we might as well just segue and turn the conversation from that at that point. Is it something that you're, passionate about speaking about so what um and gets involved in a lot of the work that you do these days so what are you know how do you sort of deal with this oftentimes um you know depending upon the wealth of a person uh, addiction centers are are costly to begin with how do you even begin to to deal with a situation like that yeah well i'm not saying that uh you know i went to four treatment centers in my uh life and you know obviously i picked up tools in each and every one of those treatment facilities, which eventually helped me to, you know, now have over 5,000 consecutive days of sobriety, you know? And I think that, you know, what people don't understand is, you know, like I hate the word addiction because it has so much shame attached to it, you know? You know, a lot of people just say, well, why don't you just stop drinking? Well, I wish it was that, easy to do you know there's so many uh different uh factors that are involved you know and uh you know um you know i experienced a lot of trauma in my childhood and in my adolescence which left me in you know emotional pain and suffering and, and what I call emotional pain and suffering is mental health, right? So you're left, you're left with this emotional pain and suffering. So how are you going to deal with it? Well, we tend to gravitate towards the dark side of life. And we get involved in addictions because the addiction helps us manage the emotional pain and suffering that's left behind from our traumatic childhood experiences, you know? And it's a process of a lifetime, you know, I always say I'm in therapy for the rest of my life and I'm okay with that. Um, but what, you know, big, big pharma, big pharma has taught us is that, you know, there's this magic pill that we can take where all of these, you know, symptoms are going to go away, right? But, you know, what they're doing is they're giving us synthetic brain chemistry. 
without knowing, without knowing, you know, uh, what kind of chemicals we're lacking in our brain. And so, you know, that whole thing is a trial and error process as well. So, you know, um, and, you know, the most effective thing that, you know, that I've found is just the basic stuff. Sleep seven to nine hours a night, eat well, exercise, meditate, do yoga, you know, these kind of things. And, you know, eventually, you know, your, your mental health stabilizes and, you know, you can go on to have a happy, healthy, peaceful, productive life. And it's, you know, at the end of the day, it's, it's, it's not rocket science. It's just basic, you know, stuff that, you know, uh, may be considered, you know, fluffy, but you know, at the end of the day, it works. Well, look, let's talk about that then. I, uh, it's, it's, it's certainly the dark stuff that, that came out, but for a lot of people that are listening to this, they, you know, they've never heard the, the Theron Fleury story. And this was, um, you know, obviously this was, this is breaking news in, in Alberta nationally when it came out, but, um, you know, for, for people that are unfamiliar with this, um, there, there was this guy named Graham James who, uh, who, who was your coach when, when you were younger who, and became known, um, in the media some years ago after, uh, another player by the name of Sheldon Kennedy outed him for sexual abuse. And I, I don't remember the full timeline, but I believe that you came out public with the same accusations quite soon after Sheldon had revealed them. And for, um, a, a lot of people listening, this is going to be the first no, time that they've heard this. Mm-hmm. So you know, well, it was twenty. Year, it was twenty. It was almost twenty years after the fact that Sheldon came up with this, his uh, revelations. So now, were were you guys both playing with? The, I think you were both on the the Flames during the ninety four ninety five mm-hmm. season. Like, had, had you guys discussed your encounters with him, or or were comfortable? Uh, did either of you know that this was going on before he came out publicly with this? Yeah, I think we both, you know, we both knew that we had experienced, you know, similar things and, uh, you know, but, uh, as of 2019, I have not seen a guide or a book that, uh, tells us how we're supposed to deal with this. And, you know, I just wasn't ready to deal with, you know, with that part of it. He was, and, uh, you know, has done an amazing job, uh, you know, creating awareness and, you know, implementing systems, uh, you know, that uh, are effective for, you know, kids organizations and, and all that. And, and so, um, but yeah, it was, it was a difficult time in my life because, you know, I thought I'd buried it and uh, I would never have to deal with it again. And, uh, you know, obviously when he came out with his story, it brought back a whole lot of, uh, you know, memories and, and, uh, things that, uh, you know, like I said, I, I, I wasn't ready to deal with that at the time. And that's when my, my addiction kicked into high gear was, you know, shortly after that. Um, one of the, uh, as I said to, I think before we started recording, so I spent the last few hours before a check and just look, looking at some of the other interviews that I've done. And there was one that you did with CBC and I was astounded to hear this. And you said it occurred 150 times between the ages of 14 to 16. And what I'm, what I'm trying to figure out is that for kids that aren't involved, uh, for parents or kids that aren't involved in sports, they don't 
understand, I guess, the, the access that coaches and adults have to, to kids. Can you, can you take us through the sort of the minor and junior hockey environment where, uh, where someone would, would have access to you or where you'd lift alone on, on, on road trips? I mean, it just, it, uh, it's, it, it just sounds harrowing in the amount of access that, that he had to, to kids. Mm-hmm. But what we're seeing, you know, is, you know, after Sheldon's story came out, then the Catholic church came out. Then Penn State came. Then Penn State came out. Then Hollywood came out. You know, so you know, um, uh, you know, a quarter of the people that walk around on this planet have had the same experiences I have had, yeah. right? Okay. So one in three, one in three girls, one in five boys. So you know, we can't just single out hockey as being you know the number one culprit of sure. pedophilia. You know, this is a worldwide epidemic, you know, where uh, child trafficking is a billion dollar industry, a billion dollar industry. Child trafficking is a billion dollar industry. So, you know, uh, um, so you can see the magnitude of, you know, how many children get uh, or have the same experience, you know, that Sheldon and I have had. And that's why, you know, both of us have chosen, you know, to live the rest of our lives to advocate for kids who don't have voices. Mm. It's one of the things that's quite confusing to me when I watch the, the, the media, because when they report it on the news, the term that they use all the time is, is sexually abused. And it's, I, I just find it as sort of a nondescript blanket term when when we're what we're really talking about is rape and I'm uh, I'm a little bit confused oftentimes of why they're not a little bit more honest about this in in the media. Well, some smart-ass lawyer who had a pedophile as a client, you know, came up with the phrase sexual abuse because it's not as you know uh, substantial as rape, you know, and you know, got his client off. And so all the other smart lawyers saw this case and started using the word, you know, sexual abuse as opposed to, you know, what it really is. And that's rape, you know? Well, to me, to to me, it's murder is what it is. You know, if you want to really go to the next level, because it's a murder of the soul and the spirit and, you know, all these, uh, you know, these phrases, which I'm using because it's the truth. And then, you know, we spend the rest of our lives, you know, trying to make sense of it to get to a place of, you know, self-forgiveness and self-loathing and addictions and, you know, and all that stuff. So we can, you know, uh, assemble some sort of, you know, life where we can function, you know, on, you know, life on life's terms. Yeah. Uh, do, do you think, uh, and I kind of question myself whether I wanted to ask this question because it sounds un, uneducated, but I'm, 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 I'm hoping that you'll understand what I mean, what I mean by it. And do you think that the, the acceptance of homosexuality in recent years can, can curb this predatory behavior only because, uh, perhaps in theory, um, by homosexuals being forced to be in the closet ended up in these sorts of organizations where they could behave in a a predatory fashion or is it a very sort of clear-cut 
difference between no, these are pedophiles, and and it ends there. Yeah. Well, uh, I don't think we have enough research uh, from a neuroscience perspective as to you know why certain people are certain ways, right? You know, and you know, there's no two people on the planet who have the exact same chemistry, right? And so unless we're sticking people in MRI machines and having, you know, images of their brains being taken, you know, we don't know as of yet why, why you become a pedophile or, you know, uh, why you prefer, prefer the same sex gender, you know what I mean? So, you know, um, uh, but, you know, I believe that we are headed in the right direction when it comes to neuroscience and making sense of all of this, you know, and, you know, what's, what's interesting is, you know, that, you know, the Catholic church, you know, who's probably, and, and I think religion in general has done the most abuse to humanity over the years, you know, why, you know, these kinds of organizations, uh, you know, are still, you know, at the center, you know, of this, you know, epidemic and that, you know, they don't have to face consequences and, you know, all this stuff. And then they're making rulings about homosexuality and, you know, and, and, and all this stuff is, is, you know, to me, um, a bit ridiculous and a bit redundant, (laughs) you know? And so, uh, you know, I always, you know, I always refer to neuroscience because for me, it's the neuroscience explanation of my behavior was when my life changed because I now had an explanation, you know, for my behavior and that I could go and fix it, that I could rewire all my trauma in my brain, that I could, you know, recover uh, by taking a neuroscience perspective and approach to, you know, my recovery. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, as, as I read more about it, I was, uh, I was quite astounded by it because I, I remember the, the other thing I remember is that you had to encounter him again. So I was going back and rereading around the, the launch of the Calgary Hitmen as a, as a uh, Western Hockey mm-hmm. League team. And it, it was, as you remember, it was really big news at the time because, uh, Bret Hart was attached to it. They ended up using, you know, his name and, and his low, there was, um, there were issues around the name of the hitman and the branding around it. And then as I read through the pages, it said that Graham James was also attached to the project while you were part of it. I mean, how do you, how, how did you sort of deal with that? Uh, I mean, cause it just, it seems to me that even after the abuse ended, you couldn't escape him because he's sort of part of this hockey this hockey scene that's taking place and you're he's constantly yeah. in your face no matter what yeah well you know the explanation is you know stockholm syndrome you know is the best way i can explain how that you know happened and you know it was a constant barrage of phone calls from him you know, after he got let go from Swift Current is that, you know, he wanted to continue to coach and stay in the game. And because all of us guys that he had coached 
who are in the NHL and making, you know, insane amounts of money, you know, he approached, you know, as many of us as he could to support him in this, you know, venture to bring this junior team to Calgary and, you know, uh, yep. How, how do you deal with that? Uh, so you, 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 you accepted it or you were on board with it? Well, if you Google Stockholm syndrome, oh, there man. is a great explanation as to why, uh, people who are abused, uh, you know, still feel some sort of loyalty towards their, you know, abuser. It's like women who go back into, uh, you know, abusive relationships, you know, it's the same, you know, where you are attached to them and, and, you know, it's difficult to make sense of, you know, why you still want to be in this person's life or a part of, a part of their lives as well. I understand that. Um, so has, has that changed? How, how do you view, view the situation now? how do I view it? I don't think about it. I don't need to think about it. It's not part of my psyche anymore because I've worked really hard to, you know, rewire, uh, in my brain. So post-traumatic stress disorder, which I suffered from well after, uh, you know, what happened is, you know, I've spent a lot of time with some really skilled therapists, you know, rewiring, you know, those two and a half years, uh, of my life. So, when I hear the word Graham James or pedophilia or whatever it is, I do not have any reaction uh, chemically uh, to what happened. Okay, you you had mentioned earlier, you know, the 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 struggle with addiction and in, in your um, how you don't enjoy that term, but uh, for, for how much of your playing career were you under the influence of of alcohol and, dr- alcohol and drugs, and how long were you using? Uh, from the time I was 15 until the time I was 36. All right. Okay. And, um, so basically from the first, first time I had a sip of alcohol, I was fucked instantly. Okay. Yeah. Because it was, it was a way to manage the emotional pain that was left behind from those experiences. Mm. When you and when you talk about your sobriety, I, I know a few other people that um, uh, that that have become clean and sober. Uh, some of them are still able to enjoy having a couple drinks without going overboard. Can can you do that? Are you are you a, a, a teetotaler? No. no. Yeah, I'm done. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I find other ways to get my dopamine and serotonin hit. All right. Um, well, look, let's, uh, I, I want to talk about some of the, the things with politics. I, I see some of the stuff that you post online and I, um, mm-hmm. the, there's, mm-hmm. there's quite a few things that, that, uh, I think will probably share a lot of those sort of similar opinions. When, um, as, as I mentioned in our periodical that we do in Canada, <clears throat> we'll be doing a, a story with, um, with the organization Alberta Fights Back, who I assume you might know that they've been doing some billboards there and, uh, they're, they're focused on the issue of, uh, Alberta and prairie secession. You know, you would know the landscape of Manitoba, Saskatchewan, and Alberta very well. Um, do you want to just sort of talk as someone who's who's over there, living there at the moment, the the anger of the prairie provinces when it comes to, you know, not getting any uh, any recognition or support federally? Mm-hmm. Well, what we're seeing, not only in Canada but 
worldwide is this idea of socialism. Okay. And, you know, anybody who knows anything about Western Canadians is that we are hard working people who have a tremendous amount of pride in the work that we do. Okay. And so what socialism is, is that, you know, it's big government, right? That we need to rely absolutely solely on government taking care of us. Right. And so that's where the anger comes from. We just want to work. We want to be able to produce our resources. We want to be able to work hard and through the fruits of our labor, support our families. Right. And what, what's happened, what's happened here is they have landlocked the resources and they've landlocked the jobs, you know? And so uh, people who are used to working hard every day are not working anymore, you know? And so, you know, that's where, that's where, you know, the anger comes from is that, you know, people want to work, can't work because our government says that, you know, they want to take care of us. They want big government and, and they want to, you know, tax, you know, the living crap out of us. And, you know, all that money just keeps going to foreign entities. None of it is, none of it is staying in Canada, you know. And so, you know, it's, it's, it's ridiculous. Absolutely ridiculous yeah they were talking um in the story that we, that we do they talk about how they won't build the pipeline so quebec won't bring in uh won't bring in alberta oil so they're still importing it from the saudis so they're supporting a saudi regime in order to do this and at the same time a lot of these um uh these green groups that are being funded are actually being funded by the rockefellers which is holding up american oil interests in alberta so alberta is not being able to pull out of the ground and export it anywhere and is benefiting everyone yeah. except for Canadians. Mm. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, 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 you know, uh, the liberal party of Canada believes that the Canadian people work for them and, and that we need to be told how to live our lives. You know what I mean? Like, that's not government's responsibility. Government's responsibility is to, you know, improve the quality of people's lives. And I would say for the majority, Canada has never been at a place that we're in right now, you know? And scandal after scandal after scandal after scandal, you know, it's, you know, it's absolutely ridiculous. Do you think there's any reason why... B- BC is sort of this uh, um, uh, outlier. So the the Prairie Provinces, you, you know, it's sort of a well, Alberta's quite staunch, and that's what it's known for. But then, you know, right next door to us, when we call us the West, we've got you know, arguably the 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 hardest green province in the country. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> well, I, I would say follow the money. Always follow the money. The money will will eventually get you, you know, to the answer and. Uh, you know, Canada has never been more corrupt than it is right now, you know, and, and, you know, we're seeing it day after day. Is this another scandal or another investigation or, you know, whatever it is. And, and, uh, you know, we, we are allowing 
outside entities, which means other countries, to you know dictate what's happening in Canada. And of course, Canadians are, you know, uh, being more and more privy as to the timeline of you know everything that's happening. And uh, and here we are. You know, here we are. The worst, the worst time in Canadian history. And, you know, you know, the, the guy that's leading the country is not a leader. No, he's definitely. not a leader. Never has been, never will be, you know, he's got the name Trudeau. That's it. You know, when, when you're, when you're sitting across or beside the leader from Japan and you say that he's from China. Hmm, that's right. That like just happened. Ridic- yeah. How ridiculous is that? How ridiculous is that? That you can't even for five minutes remember who you're with. You know, that's why, that's why I keep saying on social media, you cannot fix stupid. No matter how hard you try, <laughs> you cannot fix it. You absolutely cannot fix it. And and when are we going to have a minister of common sense in this country? Mm. Well, look, the, the the first part of this process has, has potentially started. Um, Alberta just went through provincial elections very recently. Um, Jason Kennedy has has been out to Ottawa to meet with Trudeau, uh, I think, to acknowledge that they're going to... Um, fight the the issue of the pipelines in in court um what, what do you think what do you think he needs to do to get the province back on track well nothing's going to happen until the end of october right we're just going to see a whole bunch of mud slinging and more scandals that's what's going to happen and you know if you sit on the right you know you're a racist you're a misogynist you're you know, all it's it's honestly God, it's it's absolutely ridiculous what is happening here. Look, it's no different than what than <laughs> what know? we encountered down here. It's you know, I um as as I said, I, I understand why people voted for Trump. It makes perfect sense to me, and we're encountering the same thing down here in Australia. If you're um if you're in for cultural assimilation and making sure that sort of immigration follows that stand, and you explain that. Immigration is fine, but we need to make sure that we can afford to pay for these if they need to come in and, and be on welfare programs. Australia has a very similar economy to Canada where it's resource-based. And when you've got all the environmentalists saying, you know, you're not allowed to pull anything out of the ground for your nation's prosperity. And then you've got, um, you know, huge amount of government intervention and red tape on creating businesses, uh, boosting minimum wages that that prevent small businesses from even being able to start up. We're encountering a lot of the same same issues down here, even though I still you know, consider myself a, a born and bred Canadian. Yeah, well, that's socialism. <laughs> you know, that's right out, right out of the left's playbook. All of this is right out of the left's playbook, right? And it's it's been proven over and over through decades and decades that socialism, at the end of the day, does not work. Does not work. Well, where do you think you that? I, I don't disagree with you, but one of the things that I guess um, 
you know, having left the countries, everyone talks that they go, well, Canada's a socialist country. I mean, look at the healthcare system that you've got. Is there sort of an element that you can, you know, Canada is considered at least a socialist democracy, almost the way that Sweden is to a lot of regards. And in the same way that the outsiders that I talk to, as I say, over here, there's, there's nobody that I meet, um, Who's who's not sort of from key provinces that thinks Trudeau's bad? They absolutely love this guy who takes selfies and wears pink socks and <laughs> you know, and uh, and uses catch-all terms well, like inclusiveness. They don't really look beyond yeah. uh, beyond the facade of he's, it. He, he's the village idiot, is what he is. He's the village idiot, and you know I think the more days that go by and the more we get to October, I think you know that that image is completely, you know, going to the wayside and we're seeing him for, you know, the stupidity, which is, which is, you know, their party and even their party is starting to rebel against. That's right. Yeah. And he's kicking them out of Catholic. He's kicking them out for even saying anything now. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So, you know, I, I believe that anything that improves the quality of lives of you know the people of this country i'm all for it which means we need a selfless leader who has who lives his life with compassion and vulnerability and empathy and and all these things and and but you know um and and this this goes back to what we talked to earlier you know is we have never seen in the history of leadership in the world where we have the most traumatized leaders who, who experience the same thing that I experienced as a kid. We're seeing these guys become leaders, psychopaths, sociopaths, you know, that are leading countries. Because when we're traumatized, we, we, we tend to uh, need power in order to, which is an addiction in itself, is you know because we you know we we experience what we experience you know it's all about ego we need our egos fed and there's no bigger of an ego that's being fed is trudeau's ego right and you can't lead you can't lead with ego okay because what happens what happens is eventually People resent you and they start to dislike you and all of that. And that's exactly what we're seeing in Canada is, you know, this guy who's led for four years with his ego his selfies and, you know, you know, he's a, he's a self-proclaimed feminist and, you know, all this BS, you know, we're finally seeing through it, which is create creating resentment. Right. But people who lead with, with 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 compassion and empathy and vulnerability and all those things, you know, people will follow you to the ends of the earth if that's your leadership uh, style, right? And and don't ask anybody to do something that you're not willing to do on your own. You know, if you ask Trudeau to live in poverty for a year? Do you honestly think that he would do that? Well, I think Not he would, but you, you have to understand his version of pro- poverty is probably 150 grand a year living somewhere. So it's it's he he lives a different life to us. He, he's he 
he's he's the son of a former prime minister who sits on on government funds already yeah. before he before he was even yeah. born to come into this and uh and then he was it's it's no different almost to like the american democrats for because he was the son of a trudeau it's almost like a clinton so it's like oh we need another one of those yeah. to run the country mm-hmm. yeah and what did the americans say not a chance we're having another clinton in you know what i mean so and it's uh and you know what's really interesting is you know some of the richest people on the planet are politicians yes. how does that happen well this is one of the I mean, arguments how, 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 you know how, how does that happen well this is one of the the things that i've been reading online when they talk about american politics is they you know they keep banging on about telling trump to release his tax returns he goes ah you know maybe i will maybe i won't but then they go, oh, well, what about Hillary Clinton and Nancy Pelosi and Elizabeth Warren? These people have only their entire life lived in the public service. And apparently they're worth millions and millions and millions of dollars. How do you end up at that point being if, – if you haven't worked in the private economy and you work as a, as a bureaucrat, how the hell do you have that much money saved up? Exactly, because what, what is an average congressman's salary? 250 Maybe, yeah. Okay, so do the math. 250000 for 30 years. What's that? That's $6 million, not $200 million. Yeah, exactly. That's $6 million, right? So, so either there's a whole bunch of insider trading going on where they fucking buy these, you know, penny stocks that turn into billions of dollars, right? Because they can influence... Oh. There's construction right? engineering so, contracts as well that, that pass by yeah, and those yeah. handshakes that go through yeah. for it, yeah, skimming of everything. It's, it's, yeah, it's hilarious. So and then the rest of and then the rest of the world, um, you know, yes. yeah, it's just it's, <laughs> I, I don't know. I, so you, you, know, I, you, I sit here, I sit here every day and just shake my head, you know. And well, now, and now, and now the last you know, has all the media support. So the message that's being portrayed out there is like, it's one way. But it's, it's a little, but this is the whole thing. It's it's ridiculous. What is the truth? What is the truth? Well, again, as you said, you you follow the money. Once you start looking at the, at the numbers and, and this is, I think one of the issues that you find is that they, they only worry about the feel good stuff and they don't understand the impact of any of it. And they refuse to, I think is the biggest problem. Because there's now they're sort of wrapped up in this idea that capitalism is evil. So if you want to talk about money and how that affects, you're you're already part of the problem. I think we're dealing with sort of a uh, an entirely new ideological uh, environment here that that's taken hold over the last couple decades. Yeah, it's, it's you know it's, it's it's a sad state of affairs, you know, where uh, you know I. I'm a firm believer in the universe and the universe has absolutely everything we need for every single human being that lives on this planet. You know what I mean? But because, because you have trauma, which is the biggest epidemic on the planet, right? We've all experienced trauma in our lives. And those of us who don't deal with the trauma, right? Because hurt people hurt people. Right. Well, we'll take us through the work that you're. That's 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 exactly what we're seeing. It's hurt people hurting people every single day, right? And instead of instead of taking it from 
you know, uh, uh, a spiritual perspective where, you know, I have everything that I need. I don't, you know, I don't need $50 million like I did in my NHL career because $50 million made me corrupt and fucking ego driven and all this bullshit. Right. And, and now that I don't, I don't, I don't have this money. I'm 50 times or a hundred times happier than when I did. And, and now that I'm in the field of helping people, you know, I have this amazing life. Let's talk about that then, because, you know, you've, you've been talking about, you know, um, uh, research, mental health, um, science and medicine, uh, at this, all of this, does this fit underneath flurry enterprises now? Is that all the work that you do in terms of your speaking and community work these days? Yeah. You know, we're, we're trying to get people to think differently that, uh, um, that we're in the majority, whether you have a trauma experience, a mental health disorder or an addiction, you're in the majority. You're not in the minority, right? That's been, that's what my research has told me. Okay. So, but, you know, I can only help people that want help, right? And the majority of people don't want help. Okay. That's always the way you you can't help someone unless they choose to help themselves. Exactly. Until they hit that proverbial rock bottom, so to speak. Right. And so, and so what we try to do is to formulate a message that, you know, it's okay to ask for help. It's okay to go on a healing journey, you know, all of these things. And, you know, we try to, uh, lead by example, right? Because if you read my story, you know, I'm in the minority of people who actually, you know, have gone on to, you know, make their lives better, right? And so, you know, that's what we're trying to tell people that, hey, you're in this spot right now, but you don't have to stay there. You don't have to sit in it. You can you can find ways to heal and, and move forward in your life. Right. But, you know, and I call myself a, a, an expert in relational trauma. Well, my trauma happened in relationship in relationship with my parents in relationship with my abusers, you know, some of the coaches that I had, some of the people that I, you know, around caused trauma in my life. And so how am I going to heal from that? Why I'm going to heal in, in relationship. That's what I'm going to heal. Right. And so, and so the first relationship I have to have is with myself first, right? Need to love myself, need to take care of myself instead of, you know, always being in conflict or running away, you know, from situations or being involved in addictions or whatever it is. Right. I need to get to a place where I don't need, you know, chaos and, you know, drama and all that in my life. I have to get to a place where I don't need that anymore. And and how do I do that? Well, I, I need to be in relationship with people who are also, 
you know, on the same journey and on the same path. That's how I'm going to heal. And so, you know, and so, uh, you know, we have the highest awareness in the history of our planet that trauma, mental health, and addiction is the biggest epidemic on the planet. Okay. People are talking about it, da, 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 da. But on the other side of the coin, we have the highest suicide rates on the planet. So all this awareness, why isn't it being turned into action and getting people well? That's the, you know, the million dollar question that needs to be answered. And so what's your theory on that? Community, 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 community. You get a bunch of people in a room, you use vulnerability, create safety. And then once you have safety in the room, it's absolutely incredible what happens because people start to pop up and start, you know, using their voice for the very first time in their life. And they put a voice to that pain and suffering. And then, you know, and nobody runs out of the room and nobody points a finger at them or judges them or anything, right? We just listen and hold the space long enough for that person to, for the first time in their life, you know, tell their truth. So Theo, if there's, if there's a, say a kid who's listening to this right right now who lives in some remote area in, in PEI, how, how do you deliver these programs? How, uh, how do you sort of reach out to the the amount of, of remote areas that Canada has? Well, it's, it's on a first-come, first-served basis, right? You know, I'm only one person and I can only do, you know, so much, right? But what I try to do is, you know, when I'm in PEI and I have two, two, 300 people in the room is I say, you know, you need to create a community safe space where we can have these conversations where, you know, people can stand up in front of, uh, you know, their peers and say, Hey, I was raped 150 times from the time I was 14 to 16. And, you know, people just hold the space, you know, and listen, you don't need to give advice. You don't need to, you know, all you need to do is listen. And how do you guys do this? So, you know, when you say, do you, do you guys travel to deliver these programs? How, how is the business run and how do you reach people? So basically, uh, we belong to all the speakers bureaus in Canada. And we have, we have a website. We have a very healthy social media following. And so... It either comes in through the speakers bureaus, the website, or social media. And what we've done, and what we've done over 10 years, is we've built a reputation where, you know, when we're invited to these communities, that after we leave, you know, change, you know, starts to happen. And what I do is, You know, I tell my story in a very vulnerable way, which gets people to uh, self-reflect, you know, on their own experience. And and because I know, because of my research over the 10 years, that the majority of my audience is in some sort of pain and suffering, because that's all I see in my travels is pain and suffering, emotional pain and suffering and nobody's ever explained to them emotional pain the way that we explain emotional pain and suffering 
And so people then are like, wow, okay, you know, maybe I can get rid of this. Maybe I can deal with it. Maybe I can find a safe space or a safe person to, you know, move forward so that I don't have to, you know, live in, in anxiety and depression. And, you know, I have OCD or I have PTSD or, you know, whatever it is, there's, you know, what I've found in, in the healing process is there's no such word as impossible. And that, what, that, it, that it's only possible. And what becomes the next step in the process then? So, you know, they, they come out and, and meet you, sort of identify that, that they have these issues. How do they, what's the next step in the program or how do they begin to work through these issues? Well, we usually are brought in by some sort of organization who helps in the field that I'm talking about, right? So, you know, but at the end of the day, like we said earlier, you can't help somebody that doesn't want help, right? And so you need to make the choice and you need to make the decision that I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired and that I'm going to make a change, right? And then when you make, and when you, then when you make the change, you say, oh, right, Theo spoke at this mental health organization. Man, I'm going to give them a call and I'm going to start my, my journey and my path. You know, like you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make it drink. That's very, very true. Right? So do, do you experience and that? So, it sounds like you sort of encounter this occasionally where you know that you're, you, you've sort of got someone, but they're not really opening up to the issue. Mm-hmm. All, all day, every day. I see it every day, right? But if you continue to plant the seed or you drop the wa- rock in the water, you know, you don't know what the ripple effect you have, but because we've been doing this for 10 years, you know, we get lots of great feedback, right? Because they'll email, email us. Hey, I was at your speaking event. You spoke directly to me. And you know what I did? I, I took the suggestions that you suggested in your speech and I'm on a journey and I'm on a path of healing, right? And what, ha- and what you hope happens is once that person starts to feel better is that they now go and help somebody else, you know, on their healing journey. Yeah. So when, when you talk about, you know, um, you haven't seen any of these, uh, you know, more help sort of, uh, been received now, now that you talk about these issues of, you know, uh, uh mental illness and, and the fact that it needs research. Well, what, in an ideal scenario, what would you like to see happen to sort of address these issues? Well, the mental health system in Canada is completely run over. Like the, the waiting lists and, and all of that. And so, you know, we need to see, uh, you know, more support from government, right? Like how many, how many political campaigns do you know that actually talks about mental health as being an epidemic? Exactly. <laughs> and, and so because they dole out money to, you know, different organizations, you know, they just bypass mental health. They're like, ah, oh, it's not that important, you know, and da, 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 da. right. So we, we run a foundation here in Calgary called the Breaking Free Foundation. Okay. And we support 
all trauma survivors. So we have like Vietnam vets and people that were in the South African war and, you know, people who were bullied in school and, you know, kids who are people who, who parents divorced when they were really young or grew up in violence and, or whatever it is. So we support all those people. And so we run two programs. First program is a therapy grant program where you can write to us for a therapy grant. And once you're approved, which we approve pretty much everybody, uh, we uh, then hook you up with a trauma-informed uh, therapist. And we pay for six sessions with this therapist. And then if you need more after that, you can reapply and we'll pay for more. Okay, so that's the first program. Because most people can't afford through their insurance companies more than, you know, three sessions right? Which isn't even enough to even, you know, start the process of, you know, of, uh, of understanding the layers of trauma, right? So, so then we run another program called a meetup, okay? And we do them twice a month here in Calgary, where anybody and everybody who wants to come and talk about trauma, mental health, and addiction, and we have eight board members, and so we co-facilitate a conversation around trauma, mental health, and addiction. And it goes in many different ways and directions. Um, we've actually saved five people from killing themselves in this program. And what's happened is those five people who've had these sort of spiritual awakenings are now helping other people on their healing journey and their healing process. So when I say community, I believe that creating these communities is the answer to solving, you know, the epidemic. Interesting. Do, do you think, you know, when you talk about socialism, though, one of the arguments is, is that it's, it's such a, a costly endeavor and it needs to be funded by government. Do you, is that sort of an anomaly of what you think of, uh, of where funding should be or, um, you know, issues well, of how the government funds us? Well, do you know, do you know how much our, our uh, meetups cost us to put on? Uh, well, no, I have no idea. Zero. Right. Because the venues donated to us. And it's just our, it's just our time. Right. That's it. Okay. And, and we're having enormous success in helping people deal with trauma, mental health and addiction. So, you know, but you know, the way that we're programmed is, you know, you know, we, we got to spend money in order for, for it to have success. Well, no, you don't, <laughs> you know, it's a different way right? about thinking about things. You're right, but you talk about community right. issues. It's um, mm -hmm. it's but, it's not something that know, we have anymore, though. That's the other thing that you got to. People aren't yeah. used to spending time yeah. with their neighbors and friends. It's not uh, mm -hmm. it's not something that we're yeah. conditioned to do anymore. Because we get we got to get rid of cell phones. Yeah. Because they they've taught us to to be disconnected. That's that's what they've done. You're not wrong. I, I sat on a on an education board, and they talked about the issues with kids these days, and how um how they lack resiliency and all these other issues because they're 
too glued to their phones and they're, and they're, they're scared about missing out and what people are saying about them. And they've completely lost all of their social skills these days because they can hide behind it to communicate with one another as opposed to walking up face to face. Yeah. But, but, uh, from a neuroscience perspective, what do you think cell phones provide people with from a, from a chemical? Oh, I assume companionship and probably also some form of a dopamine by, by receiving sort of yeah. messages the way that it's almost like a, a new text message comes in the way that a gambler gets a quick win. Mm-hmm. So, so when I was writing my second book called Conversations with a Rattlesnake, we discovered the four things that trauma teaches us that become the core values of what we believe we are, okay? So the first thing that trauma teaches us is abandonment and neglect. That no matter what relationship we're in, that person is going to leave us. Whether it's parents, grandmothers, grandfathers, best friends, uh, spouses, girlfriends, whatever it is. Okay? Second thing, I'm not good enough. I'm not good enough. Third thing, I'm not lovable. Okay? Fourth Fourth thing, which is our Oxycontin and fentanyl users and our people that kill themselves. Do I even exist in the world? Okay. So the majority of people who experience trauma, that's how they feel about themselves. Okay. But it was, it was the greatest light bulb moment for me because uh, the lady that I was writing the book with, who's a neuroscientist, told me that she could rewire all four of these things in my brain. And we, and we accomplish that because I, I, I do feel good enough. I am in a great relationship. I have great relationships with my kids, you know, my parents, you know, and so, you know, that is good enough. Yes. I definitely feel like I'm good enough. Do I feel lovable? Yes. I'm totally lovable. And do I exist? Yeah, I exist because I'm taking up space in the world and I'm making the world a better place. Right. So, you know, so that's, you know, that's what we need to deal with is you got a whole bunch of people walking around. And so every time they post a picture on Facebook, they're checking every five minutes to see how many likes, because every, every time we look at our phone, it's a hit of dopamine, it's a hit of serotonin, you know, it feeds that. We're looking for validation. Yeah. It feeds that pleasure center in our brain. Right. So, yeah. Well, look, that's probably a good place to, to finish off our, our conversation. I mean, um, I hadn't realized the extent of the work that you do in these days, but it's um, it, it's good that you've been able to turn it into something positive. As I said, I'm I'm living overseas now, so I, I sort of I read about this online, but I don't see the media and how present you are in it these days. Um, you know, so before yeah. well, because because they don't want to hear my perspective. They want to hear the big pharma perspective. They don't. They don't you know, they don't, they don't like guys that are healing. <laughs> well, the, well, what, what, what is the phrase? There's, um, there's no money in the cure. There's money in the, uh, in the treatment. Yes. Yes. Yep. Exactly. And when you, when you tell them that you have this program that costs nothing, they don't want to hear that. <laughs> you know? So for, for people that want to find out more, uh, where, where can they go? So they go to theoflurry.life, which is my website, and I am on LinkedIn, 
Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Uh, my handle is Flurry 14 Awesome. Well, look, thanks for your time today, and, and who knows, maybe we'll be yeah. able to, to do it again at some time down the track. All right. I appreciate, I appreciate you staying up.